Good afternoon. My name is David. I am one of the pastors here on staff at All Nations. Thank you again for joining us for our uh, second worship, 1145 service. Um, we're going to continue our series um, in the book of Genesis, and, and we titled it uh, Gospel Origins. And so many of us, we might be curious, uh, if we're talking about the gospel, why are we in the book of Genesis? Shouldn't we be actually in the New Testament with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John? Uh, and I think one of the tendencies for us is to look at the Bible as kind of isolated events, kind of all compiled together, or short stories compiled together uh, that share different kind of uh, you know, moral stories or uh, examples. But actually, when we look at the Bible, we need to see it as one big story. And, and the main character of that story is God. It's not me, it's not you. Uh, we're not at the, at the center of what the Bible is speaking about, but actually it is God. And it's particularly about God saving and redeeming a broken, lost people. That's what the Bible is about. And so when we talk about the gospel, we don't just go to the New Testament. We actually have to go back to the very beginning, the very, very beginning of how God created and actually what went wrong. Uh, so what does the gospel mean? The gospel literally means, in Greek, good news. Now, what is good news when everything in our life is already good? Right? It doesn't really have an impact in our lives. Right? Good news is truly good in light of what? Bad news. Bad news. And today, we are going to look at the bad news. And so for some of us who came on Sunday saying, hey, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out of service just happy and joyful uh, you chose a wrong Sunday to come <laughs> to experience that. We're going to actually look at the root of our dysfunction, the root of our brokenness, why the world is the way that it is, and why actually everything sucks. And, and so we're going to take a look at that particular passage uh, titled The Fall. So if you guys have your Bible, let's go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read the first seven verses. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have your Bibles or your phones, it's going to be up on the PowerPoint for you to follow along. Let's give our full attention as we remind ourselves of the dark truth of sin. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows uh, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate." And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Actually, let me go ahead and read. Uh, this won't be up on the PowerPoint, but let me go ahead and read the next two verses. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, we come before you once again uh, with such a difficult passage and a reminder of our depravity, of our sinfulness. But Lord, we know that you have made provision for us 
in light of our sin to save us and to redeem us through your son, Jesus Christ. God, but help us to see truly how dark our sins are. Help us not to just deny it. Help us not to just look over it, but help us to feel the weight of our sins against you so that the good news of Jesus Christ can be that much more sweeter, that we can gaze upon the beauty of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. God, use me as merely an instrument of your truth, and may you be glorified by your people today through your truth. We thank you so much. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm one of those obnoxious parents that if you look on my Facebook, every one of my posts is about my kids. I just don't have anything better to, to post. And so I post pictures or post videos of my kids. And uh, recently, this past week, my daughter, she just turned one. She took her first steps. Uh, it's really exciting for us as parents. We, we freak out, right, when she's taking those first two, two steps. And unfortunately, I wasn't there to witness her firsthand. But my wife, of course, caught it on camera. And immediately as we witness this and record this, what do we do? We share it with the world. Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, right? Because we're so excited and we can't help but share it with others. Uh, but, you know, as I was going back, looking at this video, and, and this may sound a little harsh, but just in a, from a purely objective, like, view of my daughter walking on, in, in that recording, that walk is pretty sad. It's not a really good full-on walk. It's more of a waddle, right? And, and she almost seems like she's... Uh, doesn't really know what she's doing, right? She has both hands up just to keep her balance and, and it's just like this, right? And, it, and she takes about five or six steps and then she falls to the ground. But you know, for us as parents, like, oh my gosh, like as if she won like a gold, uh, gold medal in like Rio. We freak out, we celebrate it. And it's just so amazing for us. But objectively, like if we grade that walk uh, that my, first, uh, my daughter first did, it's probably a D, right? Maybe a D minus. It's not all that great or impressive, Right? But again, as parents, we are so ecstatic and we're excited that our daughter's finally walking. And even though that walk is pretty clumsy and, and, and not that impressive, we have to share it with the world. Now, why do I share this with you? Because I believe God is the same. If us as parents can celebrate and want to share my daughter's clumsy walk with the world, how much more does God, who is full of glory, goodness, and beauty, how can he help but not want to share that with us? Isn't that true? And that is why God created. God didn't create because he was lonely. God didn't create because he, he was lacking something. No, actually God was full of glory, beauty, and goodness. And he wanted to share himself and to reveal himself with us. And that's why he created because some of us, we think that maybe God created because he just needs someone to validate his worth. Maybe he needed fellowship. That's why he created me, right? Because I offer the best fellowship ever. It's not true. Because we know that God is what? Triune. He's a triune God. He had perfect community. God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit. Mutually loving, mutually lifting each other up, mutually glorifying each other. He had Nothing that he needed from creation or us. So he created out of an overflow, an abundance of contentment. And that is why God created. And that's so important for us to remember. So God didn't need us to worship him. 
right? He didn't need us to worship him, to tell us, tell him how worthy he is. But rather, creation, what it does, it speaks of and reflects the worth of God. Do you guys understand that distinction? He didn't create us so that we tell him how worthy he is, but creation speaks of and reflects the worthiness of God. And that is why God created. Now, we may think, man, God is just all into himself, right? God created everything for his own glory and for his pleasure, and we think, man, this is a little narcissistic, isn't it? Because we get turned off by people, right, that do what? Platform themselves, that want to gain a followership, that is just all into themselves and they just want to tell the world how awesome they are. We don't like those type of people. And a lot of times that comes from a place of insecurity. But again, this is not our God. God is fully content. He creates out of an abundance to tell us how amazing he is. And so he creates us for his glory and for his own pleasure. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see creation doing just that. They are ideally doing what they were created to do, right? They are worshiping God. They're in relationship with him and they are reflecting the, the, the glory of who God is. And it was good. And we get this refrain over and over again. We see that God was pleased. It was good. It was good. And finally, after the sixth day, after creating man and woman, what does he say? It's very good. So at this point, so far, verses, chapters 1 and 2, everything's going according to plan. We are functioning at the level that we were supposed to function at, and that is to glorify God. But we know that that's not how the story continues. That's not how the story continues. Adam and Eve failed to glorify God, failed to glorify God. But again, he created us to be reflectors of who God is, to reflect his glory. And that's why in the Westminster, a shorter catechism, the question one, this is what question one asks. This is a summary of the Christian faith. What is the chief end of man? Why do we exist? What is our chief purpose? And the answer goes like this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And again, we see in chapters one and two, man fulfilling that very purpose, glorifying God perfectly. And for a brief moment, we see this reality. However, it is short-lived. What happened? We call it the fall. The fall. They eat the forbidden fruit and they fall. And so there's a couple questions I want to ask us and answer for us today. What led to the fall? Why did Adam and Eve fall? And what impact does it still have in our lives today? Those two questions I want to ask and answer. And so we want to take, take a look at three key essential elements to the fall. The first is the discussion. We see a discussion happening. Secondly, we want to look at the decision. And lastly, we want to see the dysfunction of the fall. So first, the discussion. Secondly, the decision. And lastly, the dysfunction. So first, the discussion. See, the mood in the narrative changes drastically by uh, uh, introducing an, an antagonist. We're seeing a serpent now coming on the scene, and we know that the mood changes because Moses is very descriptive in saying that he's crafty, he's cunning, he is sly. And the Bible describes the serpent to be Satan, and Satan is what? He's an accuser, he's a liar, he's a deceiver. And we're about to see Satan in his first act of deception. And it happens through a discussion. 
discussion. And what is the topic of this discussion? God. Satan is about to initiate a discussion and a conversation that is theological in nature. The topic is God. And it is Eve that initiates this discussion, but it is actually Satan that initiates a discussion about God. Isn't that interesting? Now notice, notice how he starts this conversation. Verse one, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now we got to notice something here. Satan's aim is not to convince, that, convince us that God doesn't exist. He's the one who actually initiates the conversation about God. What is Satan's aim in this questioning? His aim is not to convince us that there isn't a God. He's trying to convince that God isn't good. Do you hear that? Do you hear that in this questioning? Did God actually say that you can't have any fruit from any tree in the garden? Now, if we listen to that, we think, oh yeah, that kind of sounds familiar. It sounds familiar because in chapter 2, he says something similar. But when we look at the original command, we see that Satan twists God's command severely. Right? So we, what, was, what did the original command say? Chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of what? Every tree. Every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you see what Satan is doing right now? He is trying to paint a picture of God that is not real. He's saying God is restricting. He's suffocating. He does not want you to enjoy your life. He's withholding blessings. God doesn't have your interest in mind. Now people then ask, why did God have to put this tree in the middle of the garden? Right? Well, isn't that so cruel? Right? It's like for me and Jane like to get a huge box, put it like wrap, uh, wrapping paper around it and put it in the middle of the living room and say, Deacon, you cannot touch that. You can't open that. Right? And that's pretty cruel because my son, he's three years old and any present that he sees, he wants to open even if it's not his. That's just him. He just wants to open everything. Right? Isn't that cruel for us as parents to do that? Just to, just to put this like present together, put it in the middle and say, Deacon, don't touch it or you're going to get spanked. That's cruel. But is that what's actually happening in the garden with God and Adam and Eve? No. It's more like this. It's like us as parents, we get like a bunch of boxes and presents and we lay it all over the living room and say, Deacon, you can open all of them, but that one you cannot open. Right? So the question and the complaint can't be, God, why did you put that tree in the middle? The question that we need to be asking is, how in the world did Adam and Eve mess this up? How did they screw things up? They had every tree to eat, one tree they weren't to touch or weren't to eat. How did they mess this up? What's going on? So why did God put this tree in the middle of the garden? Three you know, suggestions and ideas. Now, I, might, I may be wrong, but I think I'm pretty close to maybe why God placed this tree in the middle of the garden. The first reason is to tell Adam and Eve, you have dominion, you have authority, but that authority isn't ultimate. It's not ultimate. You're not sovereign. Only I am sovereign. And so he places this tree in the middle of the garden. There's only one God. You are not God. 
The second reason why I believe uh, God places this tree in the middle of the garden is because he doesn't want the affections of a robot. If we had no choice, no will, that's not love, right? We're just a program designed to just automatically choose God. But that's not what God wants. God created us in his image, and part of the image is to have the ability to choose free will. Free will. And so he places his tree to see if Adam and Eve will choose God over, their, over themselves. And so we call this a probationary period. And so the promise was, if they did not, and they ate from the tree of life, they would actually live in paradise forever. They were in probation. Lastly, the reason why God places his tree in the middle of the garden, and this may be the most, re- most important reason why, to tell us that obedience will lead us to joy. Obeying God would lead us to everlasting joy. So many of us, we think God gives us a law. He gives us these boundaries because he doesn't want what's, what's best for us or, or he's just trying to rob all our joy. No, the lesson that we get from this tree that's in the middle is if we obey God, we will enjoy life everlasting. And so the discussion continues. Eve now corrects Satan's misinterpretation of God's law. Verse two, and and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So far, so good. So far, so good. She gets it right. But then she adds this little extra at the end. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Did God say that in the original command? No. Now, it's kind of a little bit curious why Eve added this last tagline. And maybe, maybe Satan's kind of accusation is getting to Eve to make God to be more restrictive than he is. He never said, don't touch it. He says, don't eat it. So we go on. So Eve does an okay job of repeating God's command. But now Satan's about to attack the very character and the word of God. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Please listen carefully. Satan's not interested necessarily, first and foremost, of our behavior. He's not interested in changing our behavior. And actually, he cannot force anything from us. He can only tempt us. He's more interested in what? Attacking our belief about God. If he can convince us that God is actually not good, then our behavior will follow easily. Isn't that true? If God is withholding blessings, if God is not for me, if God is not good, then I'm going to take matters into my own hands. So he's not interested in our behavior first and foremost. He's attacking the very fundamental belief about God, who he is, his character, his nature. Friends, what do we believe about God today? This is the most important thing about us, is our faith and our belief about God. What is it that you believe about God today? And the follow-up question is that, what is the source of that belief? Because many of us, it's our circumstances. Many of us, it's our sufferings, 
our frustrations. Because our life is not the way that it is, we think God cannot be good. Because we're struggling with that sin and that we just can't overcome, we feel like God cannot give me victory. That God isn't good. He's withholding. And so sometimes for many of us, circumstances dictate our view of God. And Satan will use that to convince us that he does not love you. He does not care for you. He's actually left you. So how can God be good when I'm struggling financially? How can God be good when I'm when my marriage is failing? How can God be good when my children are disobedient? How can God be good when my career and my ambitions are getting frustrated and we just cannot progress? How can God be good? Satan is interested first and foremost about what we believe about God, not our behavior. The behavior follows our deepest convictions about who we believe God to be. And so there aren't easy questions to that, to, to, uh, answers to the questions that I asked you. There aren't. But I guarantee you Satan is using that to convince you that God isn't good. And so the fall started with a discussion about God. Initiated by the serpent, initiated by Satan, convincing Adam and Eve that God is withholding his goods from you. God is withholding his goodness and his blessing. So after weakening their faith and their, and their trust in God, they make, this, they make a decision that will ruin all of humanity. That's the second point, the decision. What is the decision that Adam and Eve made in eating this fruit? Verse 6, uh, verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now we have to ask the question as we're looking at this whole scenario play out. Where in the world is Adam during this whole time? What, what in the world is he doing He's given the responsibility to guard and keep the garden and to watch over his wife. What in the world is he doing? Right? If it was like, if it was today, I'm pretty sure he's out trying to catch Pokemon on Pokemon Go. Or he's on a fantasy draft, totally just ignoring his responsibilities. What in the world is he doing? And then when Eve comes and says, hey, eat this, he's like, oh, okay. And he just eats it. Such a typical, like, dull-headed guy. Not all, all guys are dull-headed, but I mean... We are the product of Adam. We're the same. Oh, okay. And just eat it. And therefore, Adam and Eve, they, they fall. They fall. Now, it's, it just sounds kind of crazy. How can just eating a fruit ruin all of creation and humanity? Does, does the punishment fit the crime? Right? Does the punishment fit the crime? It just seems so petty. Like, is God a petty God? Why, why did this ruin all of creation and humanity. It's, it's in their decision. It's something about their decision as they ate the fruit that is significant here. What decision did they make as they ate the fruit? What were they communicating? What was their decision? I want to be God. I want to be God. That's their decision. Say, God, you get out. I'm, I could do a better job than you. And so they ate the fruit and they fell. They're saying, I want to be God. 
See, it wasn't good enough to just enjoy God's glory and all that he created and all the trees that they can eat of. It wasn't just good enough to enjoy God's glory. They wanted his glory. You guys hear that? They wanted his glory. So instead of reflecting God's glory, they were reaching for God's glory to, to be something that they can obtain and possess themselves. And in reaching for something that is unattainable, what did they do? They fell. They fell. God's glory is not ours to have. That belongs to him and him alone. But Adam and Eve, eating the fruit, is saying, God, I want you out and I want to take your place. And so sin entered the world. So then what is sin? Right? Is, it just, is, just, is it just breaking just kind of arbitrary law? Just, just like, oh yeah, I'm sorry for speeding and I get it. Is that, is that, what, is that what sin is? This is what sin is. Sin is very simply substituting yourself for God. You, you say, I'm going to take the place of God. The place that only God deserves to be, God, you get out, I'm going to take your place. It's a substitute. We're substituting ourselves for the place of God. Now, there are appropriate substitutes in our lives, right? Substitutes aren't bad. In basketball, to have, good, to have a lot of subs or substitutes is a good thing, right? Substitute teachers. We love substitute teachers because we can get away with things when a substitute teacher comes, right? Oh, when you're cooking, right? You have butter, you have sugar. There are healthier substitutes for cooking, right? Instead of using butter or sugar, healthier options. But at the same time, there are things that we just cannot substitute. There's just things we cannot substitute. If we try to, it will devastate our lives. For example, Let's say Jane comes home and she brings a, a substitute husband. She brings a substitute husband. That is wrong. I am irreplaceable. I am her husband. There's no one else in this world that could fulfill the role of a husband besides me. And so for her to say, hey, David, I'm bringing a, a substitute husband, I'll be heartbroken and devastated because there is no such a thing. It can't be. That's called adultery. She's cheating on me. So when we sin, we're replacing ourselves with a God that's actually irreplaceable. He's, we cannot have a substitute for God. There's no substitute for God. But in sinning, that is what we're doing. So sin is not just simply, right, just breaking just an arbitrary law. Sin is actually breaking and fracturing of a relationship. It's like Jane bringing a substitute husband home and saying, now this is my husband, you get out. That's what sin is. And so few of us feel the weight of our sins because we think it's just, oh, whoops, sorry. No, Jane can't just come with a substitute husband and say, oh, sorry. No, there are consequences to that. It is treason. It is rebellion. It is adultery. It's adultery. But this is what Adam and Eve decided when they ate the fruit, God, you get out. I'm going to put my place, myself in that place. They rejected a relationship. See, we all have a center. We all have a center. And in that center is supposed to be God. And it was God in the very beginning of time. God was at the center. And we all have a center even today. It is that something or that someone 
that gives us our worth and our significance. It is that glory that we want so desperately because that's why we were created. We were created to enjoy his glory. But because of sin, we, we say, God, get out. Now there's something, there's a void that needs to be filled in that center. And the next up, who is it? It's me, my desires, my pleasure. I want to rule. I want to determine for myself what is right and wrong. And so we say, God, you get out. I'm going to put myself in that center. And many of us, we do that. And that, and us being in the center looks, looks different. There's different forms to that, right? It could be our careers. We put that in the center because that's what gives us our meaning and our significance. It could be money. It could be sex. It could be our ambitions. It could be our careers. It could be another human being. That once that person is at the center, it gives me my worth and my significance. Friends, only God has a right to be in the center. And when we sin, we kick him out and we put all these other lesser glories in. Lesser glories in. How can we find out what's at the center of our lives? Here are some questions to ask. What makes you anxious? What makes you lose sleep at night? Why is there so much conflict in your life, in your relationships? The answer to these questions can tell us what's at that center. What's at that center? See, sin, what it does, it creates a glory vacuum. Why a glory vacuum? We were created for glory. Not our own, but God's glory. So when we say, God, you get out, that void we try to fill with lesser glories. No wonder why we're so frustrated. No wonder why we're chasing after things. No wonder why it's just one thing after another. See, if it's not this girl, it may be that girl. It may, if it's not this, this job, it may be that next job. And so we just go from lesser glory, lesser glory, lesser glory, chasing and pursuing after these things, and we're frustrated because those things weren't meant to satisfy. It just, it just can't. Because God is not, he, we cannot substitute what only God can provide for us, and that is ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. But yet, we are trying to fill our lives with these lesser glories. This is what Blaise Pascal says about this struggle that we have. What else does this craving and this helplessness what, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in a man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. We were made for God. And it is in God where we can find true satisfaction and fulfillment. And so Adam and Eve, in their decision, they rejected that glory, chose a lesser glory in themselves, and as a result, and as a result, brought about a world of sin, a world of sin. And this brings us to the last point. It is this willful decision to reject God that brings dysfunction in our world. All our dysfunction, the disease and the death that we encounter today is because of this decision that God, God, you get out, I'm going to be God. See, what sin does is makes something that was natural, unnatural. Where there was a one, at one time there was security, now there's insecurity. 
When there was no fear, now we are gripped with fear. When there was intimacy, now there's separation and fracture. This is what we see in Genesis 3. All these dysfunctional causes. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve, for the very first time, their eyes were open and they were ashamed of their nakedness. Dysfunction. What was once natural to be naked and okay now is unnatural. See, sin and disobedience created dysfunction in all of creation, in all aspects of life. Nothing in this world that we experience is not touched by sin. Everything is ruined now. And so we see the repercussions of sin in Genesis chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. We're not going to exhaustively go through those consequences and those curses, but we see that there is dysfunction in every sense. Sin causes alienation from each other, between human to human. What happens when God confronts Adam and Eve? What do they start doing? They start blaming each other. And they start blaming God. It was this woman that you gave me. It was a serpent that made me do this. There's fractured in relationship. Not only does sin cause alienation between us, it causes alienation between God. God comes in the cool, in the garden, and he's searching for them. What does Adam and Eve do? They hide. They conceal themselves. When they were once walking with God in fellowship with him, now they hide from him out of fear. They realize that they are unrighteous unworthy, and so they hide. They hide. But we also see dysfunction and alienation with the very creation that God created. Work becomes hard. When once work was easy, productive, and fruitful in the garden, now man's going to work hard just to get a little bit. There's dysfunction in creation, in our work. Not to mention the natural disasters, disease, cancer, death, now all enter. Complete dysfunction. This is not what God intended. But this is what happens when we reject God and we decide for ourselves what is good and what is bad. This is what happens when we want to rule, when we want to be autonomous. We are living out of the natural order that God created us. He created us for himself and for his glory. And many of us are in the middle of dysfunction right now. I can guarantee you there's many of us living in dysfunction right now as a result result of sin. Maybe our marriage is falling apart. Maybe our bodies are failing us. There's disease. Maybe disease have have, 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 have struck, uh, you know, our our loved ones are, are stricken with disease and cancer. There's broken and fractured relationships. There are addictions. We are in dysfunction. Many of us are there. And so we barely made it to here on Sunday. We barely make it on Sunday because of our dysfunction in our lives. Why? Because there's so much guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. Adam and Eve saw their nakedness and they hid from God because they were shameful. They were shameful and they're full of guilt paralyzed by guilt. 
And so like our parents, what do we do? What do we do when we're exposed? We do the same thing as Adam and Eve. We try to cover it up, deny it. Our clothing is a little bit more elaborate. We have makeup. We come on Sundays, we put a smile on our face. We serve maybe, but inside we are dysfunctional. We are rotting away because of sin. Because our marriages are failing. Because there's so much brokenness in all of our friendships and relationships. But again, this is not how the story ends. We see something amazing happen. We see God pursuing them. See, God, was in, God had the perfect right to drag them out of the garden, left them naked. He, he would have been perfectly just to doing that. But what, what, what does he do? He walks in the garden looking for them. And we hear these beautiful words by our God. Where are you? It's not that because he doesn't know where they are. He's inviting them. In those words, he's wanting to restore them. And what does he do? What does he do? He covers their shame and their guilt. But it comes at a cost. He sheds blood. He kills an animal. And out of that animal, he makes adequate clothing for them so that they can survive in the wilderness. This is the amazing love of God. He pursues them. He enters into their dysfunction and he clothes Adam and Eve. Yes, God is a just God, so he had to excommunicate them, right? They are now outside of the garden, but not without loving them by clothing them. And we get this amazing, amazing promise in the curse in the curse that he's ushering to the, uh, the serpent, we get this amazing gospel message. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, you being the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Who is this offspring? It's Jesus Christ. This is a promised Savior. Now listen very carefully. When we sin, what do we do? We substitute ourselves for God. But what God is saying here is that there's going to be another amazing exchange, another amazing substitution that's going to happen because this offspring is Jesus Christ. Like God who, does, who enters into dysfunction in the garden, Jesus will enter into our dysfunction In the most literal sense, he will take on flesh. He'll be with sinful humanity. He will walk and talk and live with sinful humanity. He's not a, we don't believe in a God that disengages from dysfunction. He actually enters into the the middle of the chaos and dysfunction. And that's what Jesus does, Jesus did in the incarnation. But as Jesus did that, he also has a discussion with serpent, with the serpent. He has a discussion with Satan. Not in paradise at this, not, not like Adam and Eve in paradise, but actually in the desert. On the brink of starvation, Satan tempts him, asking him to compromise his relationship with God. And what does Jesus do? He resists. He endures. Instead of fulfilling his own physical desires, he glorifies God. He glorifies God. Like Adam and Eve, he too will make a decision. He too will make a decision. 
when he had all the right to, to have his clothes on, to be in glory, he subject, subjected himself to shame and guilt. He was stripped naked. He was beaten. And he decisively went on that cross. Why? So that we can be clothed with his righteousness. Jesus died naked so that we can be clothed with righteousness. And this is the amazing exchange and substitution of our Savior. He died for our shame and for our guilt. But he did not remain dead. He rose again after three days, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And so for those that believe and trust in Jesus Christ, what do we get now? Not fig leaves. We get perfect righteousness. We are clothed now with Christ so that when God sees us, he doesn't see shame and guilt. He says, he sees and says, you're innocent. You can be with me. You can run to me. You don't have to run away. You don't have to hide. You run to me when you make a mistake. You run to me when you sin. This is the amazing blessing that we have when we believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation. And even then, that's not where our story ends, brothers and sisters. Glory awaits us. Death will not have its last say. Disease will no longer be there when we're glorified with Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate hope. And that is why we can run to him constantly in our need. And so God is asking us today and I'm asking you today, where are you? Where are you? Are you hiding? Are you running away? Are you concealing your shame and guilt? If anything you leave from this, like the thought or the idea that you leave here with is that you can run to him. You can run to him because of what Christ has done. Christ offers himself to you to clothe you and to make you righteous. We but need to just repent and trust in him. Church, can we do that today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing love. Although, Lord, we disobeyed you, although we decided to be our own gods, you came pursuing us. You entered into our dysfunctional lives. You saw that we were naked and shameful and you decided to clothe us. God, you are so amazing. You're so amazing. To send your son, Jesus Christ, your only begotten son, when he was full of glory and truth, he, Jesus is God. He subjected himself to shame and guilt, naked, beaten, lashes on his back so that we can be clothed. We can be right with you. We can run to you. God, so I ask that you will help us Help us to see Jesus for who he really is. Help us to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ on that cross and his resurrection. So Father, for those of us living in guilt and shame, crippled and paralyzed by our shame and our sins, God, may you call to us and invite us back into your arms. Church, where are you today? Where are you? Are you hiding? Can I invite you to consider again, the cross. We thank you, Lord, for your love. We give you all the praise, glory, and honor. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.